I think something that's really important is making sure you have sort of buy-in and sponsorship from someone fairly senior in the organization pretty early on. Who would that be? You know, it's hard to say generically, it varies a lot by, by the way companies are structured and culturally how they work. But I think the reason that's important is at the end of the day, the, the most important, I think, thing to internalize for zero to one is there's a limit to how much strategy will get you there. Because kind of by definition, you're wandering into the darkness and there's a pretty good chance that you won't find anything. Like most startups fail. Most new products fail. When you're starting something new, you need to almost irrationally believe that you will not fail, but obviously the odds are against you. And I think, you know, the way you solve for that as a startup is you hopefully convince investors to give you enough money to give you enough time to wander through the darkness. Hello, and welcome to Somehow I Manage Product Teams. I'm your host, Naveen Pichandi, and I'm on a quest to have conversations with product leaders to uncover how each of them skillfully wield the art of managing people and products. I'm joined today by Ani Mohan from Google. Ani leads the product team at Google Labs building three generative AI products across software development, video, and 3D. Previously, Ani was the co-founder and general manager of GameSnacks, a web gaming platform that reached 35 million monthly players. GameSnacks was founded by Area 120, Google's incubator division, and acquired by Google Ads in January 2022. Ani was also featured in the Forbes 30 under 30 game section during his time leading the GameSnacks products and business. And we'll talk a little bit about it. Now, in this episode, we talk about Ani's experience building GameSnacks as part of Area 120, tips for folks building zero to one products, and finally, building products for generative AI. Now, this was recorded weeks before Google I.O. and understandably why we couldn't talk much about what Ani was working on. But goes without saying, Google took the challenge and came out dancing and had some impressive announcements. This episode has everything. A great success story and actionable advice on the hottest topic right now. Let's get into it. For management, press 5. Hey, Ani, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Naveen. Oh, that's great. Let's kick this off with your journey to being a product leader, a founder, and now running products for one of the most hottest topics in the industry with AI. So I'd love to hear all of it. Yeah. So I guess the story starts back in 2014 when I got my first job out of school, joining Google's APM program, which is a new grad product manager program, helping people who relatively early in their work career, understand what the product management job is like. I started a, a company in college in the pregnancy, healthcare, nutrition space. Totally didn't work, but was sort of my first exposure to the tech industry. You know, I thought I'd really enjoy a job in product. So, so I took the role, worked on a couple different teams during the rotational program, worked on Android, worked on Chrome, learned a ton. It was an amazing first job, but I was getting the itch to, to build something. That's why I kind of moved out to San Francisco. And I noticed it was just harder for me to do that within sort of the confines of a much larger product org. I wanted to build something from scratch. And so I was evaluating a bunch of different options. I was pretty close to going and, and leaving to, to start a company, something in the consumer space. But around that time, Google was starting an incubator called Area 120 which is essentially a hybrid between sort of a pre-seed, seed kind of series A style fund and a corporate incubator, super unique setup. But essentially the, the gist of it was um, you uh, as a small team would get some capital and some runway and the opportunity to hire 
Google talent and leverage Google technology and Google distribution to build something new. So it just felt like a really unique opportunity. Like I felt like the capital markets were always going to be there to provide funding for entrepreneurs, but programs like Area 120 might not always be there. So wanted to take a shot. And it was a whirlwind journey. I initially got funded to build an idea in the personal finance space, which is a space that I'm still really excited about, you know, how to help people better manage their finances. Long story short, that idea didn't work. Most ideas don't work, but really liked Area 120 and liked the environment and enjoyed working with the team that I, that I put together. So we got funded for a new idea after that in the gaming space. Our initial idea that we got funded for was inspired by this app called HQ Trivia which I don't know if you remember, it was a really viral kind of like interactive Live game show of sorts. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was popular back in late 2017, 2018. And in hindsight, it was a viral fad, but seemed like a media you know phenomenon, like the next big thing. It was like a hybrid between a, a game show and a game that anyone could tune into on their phone. And I was really excited about it because um, I love new media products and it felt like a new type of media format. And my co-founder was a big gamer, so it felt like something was at the intersection of the two. We got funded to build something similar. That idea didn't work. That's a recurring theme for building new things. Your initial idea and your second idea and your third idea often don't work. But that ended up forming the foundation of us pivoting across a bunch of different products in casual gaming. Spent about two years, honestly, testing almost 10 ideas, just looking for product market fit. Until we noticed one day that there were a bunch of people from India and Indonesia and Nigeria coming to our platform, everything had been built on the web to play games. Nothing to do with our initial idea, but it was real usage that we had never seen before from the previous kind of products we had tried and organic retention and people were coming back. And so when we started spending more time with our customers and, and talking to them and understanding what was happening, realized that many of them were new internet users who had never really played games before and that we had inadvertently built a really compelling web gaming platform for those markets. So we made the pivot to that uh, a little bit before COVID. The product ended up being called Game Snacks for bite-sized games. Gaming was huge during COVID. You know, everyone was stuck at home all day. So we grew pretty substantially to tens of millions of users and ended up getting acquired by Google uh, late in 2021. So I spent a year after the acquisition transitioning the business over, setting it up for kind of long-term scale at Google getting monetization up and running and, and really transitioning it from, from a product to a business. But I knew that, you know, my interest is, is very much in the earliest stage. So even though I was really excited that kind of game snacks had, had gone through the whole cycle, I was thinking about how I could do it again. And in parallel, really ever since GPT-3 came out, at this point, I guess a little over two years ago, maybe two years ago, I was obsessed. And I was constantly finding ways to try to shoehorn it into game snacks, even though it never made any sense. And I knew I wanted to work on sort of generative AI after GameStacks. And so I was fortunate that there was a role that popped up at Google about three months ago to lead up product or for an aspect of, of generative AI, I'm specifically focused on generative media products. So that's what I work on now. That's a phenomenal journey. And congratulations on the exit. I think there are a handful of 8120 graduates that have sort of been taken back into Google, I think, right? And GameSnacks is one of it. And also you scaled from what, zero to 35 odd million users within four years, if I'm not wrong, if my research is right. But that, that that's a huge feat by itself. I have a few questions there with a lot of companies have incubators of sorts within their organization where they try to test out new ideas. And typically you try to swing, but you swing within the arc of what the company vision or mission is, right? 
But for a company like Google, your your range is much more. So you could go test out a you know, gaming app or a fintech app or a healthcare, health tech app and things like that. Is that what led you to say, you know what, I'm going to do it within Google versus going and building a startup by yourself? And I'm curious, how did you weigh your, why did you stay with Google to go do this versus just building your own startup? That was the first thing that came to my mind. So I was just curious. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think there's a bunch of answers to it. One is it felt like a very unique place on the risk spectrum. Maybe one way of thinking about it is uh, the riskiest thing that you could do is probably go and, and start a business on your own, right? You have no safety net, but you have the full kind of range of potential outcomes, anywhere from you build a business worth zero dollars to a business that's worth, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Low probability of getting to the hundreds of billions of dollars, but it's possible. Probably the other end of the risk spectrum is to be an employee at a company where you are you know, highly paid, often have super interesting jobs, get to work on really interesting products, but your range of outcomes is narrower. Area 120 is somewhere in the middle on the risk spectrum, I would say. You know, you as the team have an opportunity to participate in some of the upside because of the funding sort of structure of Area 120, but you are still sort of under the Google umbrella. And so your, you know, your downside risk is a lot lower. And at least at the time where I was in my career and my personal life, that felt like the right type of place on the risk spectrum for me. And I think one of the things that afforded me to do is probably explore ideas that I might not have considered exploring if I were doing it as a standalone company because of sort of that additional safety net, if you will. Like, I don't know if I were to go start another company, I would start by thinking about it as, a, as like starting with a consumer social app, for example. The probability of a consumer social app working out is extremely low, right? And the monetization path is, is challenging. And part of what ended up making Game Snacks a good business is we were able to lean into Google for monetization. Would have been a lot harder to do as a standalone. So I think that the space of kind of creative possibilities was bigger in Area 122 compared to, you know, maybe what I, I would have personally done if I'd done it on my own. But of course, if you're truly risk-taking, you can start anything on your own. So yeah, I don't know if that helps. Definitely helps. And and I think I really like this topic just because there are a lot of product leaders, I think a lot of them who want to do zero to one kind of fall within that risk spectrum where, you know, you want to do some things zero to one, you want to go build something net new, but then you don't want to go jump too far to go build your own company just because you have other limitations or external factors like visa and things like that, where things really hard for you to go do that. And so people try to look to, you know, incubator units within organizations to go build something, which is why I, I really love kind of talking about this topic here. So I, I want to talk a little more about Game Snacks a little bit because I think you you kind of had to even pivot your business model and things within Game Snacks, right? So uh, it's funny where, you know, first time founder, you build for a product, your second time founder, you think of distribution. I feel like you went through all of that within a compressed time frame. So I'd love to learn a little more about kind of how you went through that whole journey there. Yeah, I never understood that quote when I first heard it. It just sounded like a nice quip, but I can't I can't unthink it anymore. Yeah, so I mean, I guess walking you through the whole journey. So as I mentioned, we initially got funded to build um, something inspired by HQ Trivia. Our idea, our, our sort of internal name for it was Bento. We never really launched it externally, but it was essentially, the way we would pitch it was sort of a hybrid between HQ Trivia and Mario Party for any gamers out there. Basic idea was daily game show, you know, live stream to your phone every day at the same time, but a different game every day. Because our belief was that people would get bored of trivia, playing the same thing every time. It turns out that that's a very difficult thing to build because you need to 
create a high quality media production to stream a good looking show to people's phones every day, which HQ pulled off and is no small feat. But you also need to build a new game every day. <laughs> and that's just a lot for at the time what was a four person team. So, you know, funnily enough, I actually still somewhat believe in that idea. So if anyone's out there is building it, please talk to me. Would love to love to talk to you more. But I think we discovered that we weren't the right team to like really execute on it. But our instinct was that idea of hosting a game show for an audience is an interesting format. And we thought rather than us trying to build the killer show, we had an opportunity to build a platform for other people to host shows for their audiences. And so who might those people be? They would be, you know, YouTube streamers or Twitch streamers, people who already have followings and fans. So we actually spent a year exploring that. Or we kind of pivoted what we initially built into, into sort of a creator platform to enable them to host game shows for their fans. This was 2019. And, you know, it got some traction. Like we had tens of creators using it, like not major scale, but enough to get feedback. And we saw repeat usage and there were sort of the early kernels of, of an interesting product to be built there. But where we really struggled was figuring out the business model and the monetization. 2019 was sort of the year, maybe, maybe it was around that time, maybe a little bit before, a little bit after, but it was around that time when creators were moving from thinking about themselves primarily as people, you know, having a side project, like expressing themselves creatively to more and more thinking about themselves as a business. And of course, it's only sort of expanded since then, the whole notion of the creator economy and all that. And so we were kind of right in the middle of that shift. And we saw this even firsthand with some of the creators we were working with. When we initially worked with them, they were excited to try it out. They were always trying experimental products, that type of thing. Then towards the end of when we were working with them, we, we noticed that they were becoming a lot more business-minded, which, which makes sense. And frankly, we didn't have a good answer to how creators could, could monetize from this. And so we are scratching our heads, like didn't really know what to do. And that's when we, you know, we discovered that usage in emerging markets that I mentioned and saw that, saw the kind of organic retention that was happening from, from users in, in India, especially. And so we pivoted into, into serving them. But, you know, what was interesting is to your point about distribution being really challenging, even though we saw, we saw usage on our platform and by platform, I mean, it was essentially a website with a bunch of games. We had built some of the games and we were working with developers who supplied some of the games as well, but it was kind of a simple, simple web platform. Even though we saw, we saw people come back and using it, we knew there was going to be a limit to how much people would discover and re-engage with a website. And so, yeah, I mean, I think pretty quickly we realized that web had a bunch of advantages, especially around being able to deliver these games at a very low data usage, which is a big deal for people in emerging markets who are on expensive data plans, but it had distribution challenges. And so the way we ended up cracking that, and that ultimately ended up being our, our final pivot, was partnering with existing apps that already had distribution. So the common term for that in countries outside of the West is, is super apps. We're very much inspired by kind of WeChat, which has built the killer super app, arguably in China, and has a pretty substantial gaming business, like inside of the WeChat app. So we ended up realizing that, you know, there's a bunch of uh, companies around the world that are trying to be essentially the go-to super app of their respective markets. And we had an opportunity to to deliver their gaming content. So, you know, in a sense, at the end of the day, we ended up becoming a B2B platform, connecting game developers on the one hand to super apps on the other hand. That allowed us to to really solve the distribution challenges. When you think about games, it's kind of like an app, but it's actually media form. Right. So you download apps from the app store, but then you also download games from an app store. But then that's kind of like a media 
And it's funny, I actually found Game Snacks. I think I, I read some article about you and, and kind of how I came across Game Snacks. And I started playing. This is sometime in 2020. And that's when I was like, wow, this is neat because I'm not downloading the app. I'm, I'm playing online. And it is sort of like an app store, but I'm not downloading it. it, it it's up there. And so you kind of did build a distribution platform of sorts, but then you kind of got it in front of users through these super apps, which is a genius. And, and I guess it's, it's a good way to get there. So you're... You weren't worried about acquiring users to gamesnacks.com. You're just like, be wherever you are, play. If you're waiting for something else to happen, click this and start playing, an, uh, I guess, a game within your app, which was pretty neat. And that, that made a lot of sense to me. The, the story itself is 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 amazing to hear. I think I've, I've read this when I was doing my research too. What I wanted to get to this was for others who are thinking about, you know, going zero to one, building a zero to one product within an existing company, what are some tips or advice that you would give having gone through this journey? Things to think about, things to look out for. Yeah. So I think doing it within an existing company is is an added constraint, right? In some ways, it makes the problem more challenging. I mean, it certainly makes the problem easier in a sense because you have that safety blanket, which allows you to take on more risk psychologically, maybe than you would have otherwise. But it's more challenging in the sense that you have another stakeholder that you need to make happy from day one, i.e. the company that you work for. And so... I think something that's really important is making sure you have sort of buy-in and sponsorship from someone fairly senior in the organization pretty early on. Who would that be? You know, it's hard to say generically. It varies a lot by, by the way companies are structured and culturally how they work. But I think the reason that's important is at the end of the day, the, the most important, I think, thing to internalize for zero to one is there's a limit to how much strategy will get you there. Because kind of by definition, you're wandering into the darkness. And there's a pretty good chance that you won't find anything. Like most startups fail. Most new products fail. When you're starting something new, you need to almost irrationally believe that you will not fail. But obviously the odds are against you. And I think, you know, the way you solve for that as a startup is you hopefully convince investors to give you enough money to give you enough time to wander through the darkness. But what's more scarce at existing companies is having that type of time. Right. Because companies typically are operating, especially large companies, are operating on shorter time cycles just because of who they're beholden to, which is their, their shareholders. But I think a, a really great exec, a really great senior leader can provide that sort of air cover for you. Ideally, that person is the CEO. Right. But that's not always possible, depending on how big the company is. But I think I think that's something that, that really helps. For executive buy-ins and stuff, is there a way that you think you should approach this kind of conversations? Because time with execs is kind of really hard to get with. So I'm curious kind of how, how you go about it with like, do an elevator pitch before you get into the details or just hit the headlines and do you treat them like a VC? Like, do you go into that meeting like a VC pitch or how, how did you go about it? Just curious. Well, I mean, I think, I think this was one of the benefits of Area 120 is it provided kind of a dedicated space to do that. And they provided some support in, in making that easier. But, you know, there are things that I had to figure out on my own. I think the VC metaphor is a good one. Obviously, it's not exactly that because they don't, they're not focused on financial returns in the same way that a VC is. But, you know, I think every exec at the end of the day manages a portfolio of projects as well, right? And a well-balanced portfolio ideally has projects that cover every stage of the risk spectrum. And so I think that's the mindset that I would try to use is how do you help, you know, execs who are trying to diversify their, their portfolio of projects to, to get into the riskier one. And I think what you'll find is, there's usually a few people in every organization that uh, 
at the most senior levels do want to take on more risk. I think everyone to either a small degree or a large degree is excited about zero to one because we all we all love new things. That, that's a really good tip because uh, I think what you're saying is read between the lines, try to find some folks who are eager to expand their own product portfolio within, I guess, as an exec and who are curious for ideas and, and you can go in and you kind of solve their problem for them and be like, hey, here's an idea. I'm, I'm really interested. That, that That's really good advice. I actually want to now move to the second innings of, of your career now, building on generative AI. I know you can't talk too much about what you're working on, but I wanted to just talk about the topic by itself. It is the hottest topic now. Every Google search, I think you find something about generative AI in news or product hunt has like 10 new apps being launched every day. But maybe can you give a little bit of your perspective on what excites you? Yeah, man, what doesn't excite me about generative AI? I guess where to begin? Uh, it's exciting to me on a bunch of different dimensions, I would say. The first is just a personal one. I mean, I've been excited about AI since I was a kid, just reading sci-fi and I've always loved sci-fi. Uh, and I actually remember thinking this. I mean, that's partially why I learned to code was to, uh, you know, maybe eventually work on this stuff one day. I never thought actually it would be so soon. <laughs> I thought AI was going to be more under the realm of research for longer and not products. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not a researcher, so I, I really didn't expect this moment to happen so soon. But it's something that I've been, you know, thinking about idly, like, since I was a kid. And so there's there's that, you know, there's that part of you that gets to work on what you've dreamed of since you're a kid type thing. It's also really interesting to me, kind of at a philosophical level, because it raises very fundamental questions of what does it mean to be intelligent? We've created machines that can do a lot of tasks that just a year ago, we thought are, you know, something that only the most creative people in the world can do, and only the quote, unquote, smartest people in the world can do. And now machines can do it better, you know, for a lot of tasks. And so I think I, I find that intellectual question very interesting and philosophical question of do we need to update what we think of as human intelligence and what it means to be human? I think there's societal questions that are really fascinating to me too. You know, for maybe the first time, uh, really since maybe globalization, which is, you know, the wave that that kicked off over the last few decades, we've had to read, I think we're going to, and we're, we're just starting to do this. We're going to rethink kind of white collar employment in the Western world, which is a pretty crazy thing to rethink. And I think it's going to be scary to a lot of people, very understandably. But I think also going to be in the medium to long run, like incredible for almost every white collar worker, because it sort of frees us up from a lot of the mundane drudgery we have to do in our jobs. And so that that part is really exciting to me. And then I think just the product person in me loves it too, because the products that are getting launched, like you said, every day on product hunt that you see on Twitter, that people are excited about are some of the most exciting products I've ever seen in my life. And it's just super fun to, to play with them. I relate to so much of it. It's funny when you said, yes, being a huge sci-fi fan, bringing all of that sci-fi movies and, and stuff we've seen in, in your childhood, bring that to reality. That's good part of us when we grew up and, and you get inspired by a lot of these things that you watch in movies like movies and games are years and eons ahead of what actually happens and then you get so influenced by them and you start working towards building them right that's that's so inspiring at the end of the day and and so for folks who are interested in kind of building you know within ai generative ai where do they start like what do you think they should like start thinking about? And, and especially while building products, how do you think differently while building AI products versus you know anything else 
that, that you build in the internet? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And frankly, I think we're all still figuring this out as an industry, right? Because this is so new. I think there's some parts of it that are unique, but also some parts that are universal. Like, as you mentioned, I mean, all everyone can talk about right now is generative AI, uh, which is, you know, both exciting, but also suggests that we're probably in a hype cycle. That doesn't mean I think this is overhyped. If anything, probably in the long run, it's underhyped because I think it is going to transform all of society very fundamentally. But the ways in which we think it will are probably wrong because we're very bad at making predictions. And clearly everyone's talking about it all the time, right? Which means it's probably overhyped in this moment. The reason I point that out is because I think one thing that, I mean, all of us are trying to figure out is like, what is the difference between a demo, a really killer demo and a good product? One of the challenges and, and very exciting things, but I think challenges as a product builder with generative AI is the demos are so good, right? They feel like sci-fi that kind of hijack your rational brain and it makes it harder sometimes to think critically about, hey, is there a real problem this is solving? Or are people going to come back and use this a month later? Which are you know, questions you have to be asking yourself if you're trying to build a product that people are using for the long run. So in some ways, I would say you know, how you go about building generative AI products is maybe how you go about building any successful product, which is making sure that you have a clear problem that you're solving and you have a very clear understanding of who your target user is and you're working with them and talking with them and iterating with them over and over and over and getting to know them more and more closely. But obviously there's some distinctions as well. There's probably a long list, but I think one that jumps to mind is just the notion of the user interface. I think one of the things that's interesting about generative AI is it's sort of like a non-deterministic user, user interface, it's like a probabilistic user interface, like input in doesn't always lead to the same input out. Which, uh, you know, I, I think we need to start thinking of as a feature, not a bug. Traditionally, the way we think about that in software is as a bug, right? Uh, it's viewed as, uh, you know, things not working according to spec. It's viewed as things being confusing to the user. It's viewed as complex. But I think, I think that's the whole, or one of the whole points of this thing, is at least the textile LMs, is that they are non-deterministic. And so I think, how do you lean into that as a product? And how do you, how do you make that a benefit? Uh, frankly, we're all still trying to figure this out, right? But I think, uh, I think that's a key part of it. Yeah, that's interesting because when I was thinking about our current usage, I think ChatGPT was just one of the interfaces of using GPT. I know ChatGPT came into this this massive adoption. People just understood that's how you talk to an AI. Now there are so many chat applications, but you're right, natural language with chat being a great interface is one way to, to talk to it. And now everybody's just re-envisioning you know, forms and stuff into how do I just chat into put it into a chat window and then it fills forms and things like that. I'm thinking more about it too, because I feel like we've barely scratched the surface and I don't think chat interface is the only interface that you think about. It's going to have to be entirely different. And it's, and it's, you're absolutely right. And that's entirely asymmetric. It's like your input is not symmetric to the output. You ask something and the output that you get is going to be entirely different. And it feels more like you need better guardrails when you think about AI, then you would ever think about in the other sense of when you build internet products in general, right? So that becomes more important. And sort of building off of that, like just a thought is, I think the, I, I think generative AI is going to force or encourage, depending on how what word you want to use, uh, more people to think about sort of the way that they use their products and do their work as a more iterative process. I mean, one domain in which you already see people doing this, right, and they've been doing it for decades, is programming. 
no programmer when they set out to make a piece of software is expecting to get it right the first time. You know, you, you make something, it has bugs, you do some Google searches, try to figure out what the issue is, you rinse and repeat. It's an iterative process. And, and really, I mean, that's the process of creating anything, right? It's mm -hmm. an iterative process. One of the things that I'm kind of personally excited about and I'm curious about is, is more and more of the software we're going to use require going to require people to have an iterative mindset in terms of how they use it, which is a which is a different shift, you know, from how people are used to thinking about software. But maybe that's one way it'll go. Yeah, and and I think the implications also when I was thinking about it is building companies too, right? When your tech co-founder could be GPT in some sense, like, and you could build something really, you know, quick and dirty. I know no-code tools have a kind of push that, that space a little bit and a lot of people have just started building, you know, the prototype with just bubble and, and tools like that. But now you could build definitely much better pre-seed level application just by yourself in some way. So it's interesting, your, your, your a team of two could probably be good enough to go up to CDs A, is I guess one hypothesis. We'll see how, how much that's true. I, I definitely need to get you back on to talk a lot more about what you're building at Google. Maybe not I know you can talk about it now, but sometime in the future for sure. I have one more quick topic to talk about. Ani, you were also part of the Forbes 30 under 30 under the games section. That's a huge achievement. And I want to talk a little bit about that. How has that materially changed your career outlook, You know, your op opportunities that you get and things like that? And also maybe lift the curtain for us and tell us a little bit about how that process works. I've seen a lot of these names and they say Forbes 30 under 30, Forbes 40 under 40. I never know how that works. Like, do you apply for it? Do they reach out to you and they find you? I'm curious. I'd love to learn. Yeah, it was nominated by some people I'd worked with before. That's how it ended up. I mean, who knows what the process looks like at the end of the day on their side. But that's how it ended up starting. I would not say it's changed the arc of my career uh, or anything like that. It's, it's certainly an honor. It was cool to be recognized. And I've met some um, really smart, uh, you know, ambitious people through it uh, who've, you know, become friends or collaborators. But uh, it's just, just one of many things. God, is that like a Forbes 30 under 30 private club of sorts or like a private chat group? No, it's no, it's no crazy no. private or, or maybe you can tell us about it. Just kidding. Uh, no, this, is, this has been great. I have a bunch of rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? Okay. Awesome. So the first one is like my default on the show. Your most recent wow moment using a product. Oh, wow. Uh, some AI product. I have a friend. Here's one. I have a friend who's working on a, on a new product right now. It's still unreleased. Uh, but it's trying to help people essentially better manage their time and, and prioritize their day. I don't know if you struggle with this, but I often do where I have a bunch of million things going on and I don't know what the most important things I should be working on for the day. That's your big part of your job, you know, as a PM or as a founder is to figure that out. But it's always complicated. It always gets complicated. It, it always will be. Uh, but what I loved about this product is, you know, I'd been using it for a few days and, it, and I put in my goals and things that were on my mind and all that. And then one morning I just woke up and I said, hey, what are the top three things I should do today? And it literally just told me. And I was like, wow. This is incredible. This That's is what neat. it's like to have the Uber prioritization assistant. It just made me think very differently about like what it means to manage your time and to have AI manage your time. So it was one of my, I, I feel like every day I get mind blown by some new AI product. That's neat. Is it more like your personal chief of staff of sorts? I guess. Is that what it's like to have a chief of staff? <laughs> I think I so. Know. That's what I've heard. I saw another Twitter thread where someone was like, I think GPT-4 is the future's chief of staff. I, I don't know entirely what that means, but it's curious. This is, this is. You should probably tell us the name of the app. I'd love to link that in the show notes. I'd love to use it too. Sounds yeah. Amazing. Well, I think it's still like an early beta, but uh, uh, I don't think my friend's being that open about it, but I'll let you know. Got it. Interesting. Second question. I know you're super optimistic. I have a bullish view on AI. 
What's your bear case for AI? Yeah, I think you have to be an optimist to, to work on this stuff. I think the bear case is that, uh, you know, we create something incredibly, incredibly capable that's misaligned with human, uh, you know, desires and human goals. Kind of the, the terms you hear for this in the industry are AI alignment and AI safety, which increasingly I'm realizing is, is maybe one of the, the uber questions to be asking in the space is as this research gets better and these systems get better, how do we make sure that they're doing things that ultimately benefit humanity and uh, at least uh, care, care about us so far as machines can care about us? So I worry that AI alignment and AI safety won't keep pace with the rate of progress of, of the expansion of AI capabilities. But I think a lot of, you know, all the, the leading companies that are working on AI and are, and are pushing this forward, I think, I think their leaders are very aware of this. And Do I you think, think this kind of scenario is a possibility, a <laughs> real possibility? No. What's the same more? What is it? What the is the whole Terminator Skynet scenario of just machines kill humans. I'm, I'm less worried about that because I think like the rate of advancement of robotics hasn't quite kept up Fair for enough. AI to be able to inhabits you know a humanoid body to go and like kill people but uh, there's still a lot of things you could do in the realm of pure software that are scary yeah fair enough maybe gpt just hires a hitman to come kill you i guess that's, that's <laughs> i hope not possible. i hope not <laughs> i don't think it's possible to work on this stuff and not be like a little bit scared but i'm suspicious <laughs> of people who aren't scared at all so no, that's yeah. fair that's yeah. fair i think every time i use this i'm i'm amazed 70% of the time scared, like 25, 30% of the time at least. And I'll leave 5% for, I don't know what's happening. Last question, if not a PM, what other profession do you think you would have been? Oh, wow. Uh, I'd always, uh, or not always, I guess since I was in high school, I've always loved math. And at one point I thought about going and becoming a, like getting a math PhD. I don't think I'm good enough at math to do that. So that's probably the real reason why I haven't, but I kind of fantasize about that every now and then. Uh, I also think it'd be really cool. I like making stuff. Um, and I love, I love movies. So I could, you know, one day, maybe I will do this sometime in the future is go work in the film world, screenwriter, producer type thing. Oh, that's awesome. Maybe you could do VFX and, and create the next gen. That's of, right. Of gen AI VFX. Gen AI VFX. That's right. It's funny. I actually, sorry for another time. I was this close to going into Vancouver Film School to do VFX, but yeah, like huge, huge inspiration. This you has been it. awesome. And thank you so much for taking the time. Where can people find you on the internet? Twitter. Uh, is where, where I'm most, uh, most online. So it's Ani underscore Mohan. That's awesome. And anything else that you want to call out for things that you're working on, you want people to check out? Play with these AI products uh, if you aren't already. Uh, think about how you incorporate it into your life because I think sooner or later, probably sooner, we're all going to be using it all the time. Well, that's good advice. That, that's kind of what I've taken on myself. I want to go learn how GPT is. And I looked at the encoder, decoder, and started learning about how the input turns out to the output. It, it was way above my head. And by the time I learned, even the basics, GPT-4 turned out. And so I realized, you know what? I don't think I'm going to learn more about how this works. Let me go start just using these things. That is, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to worry about how the car is built. Let me figure out how to drive the car. So I know I'm going to be driving a car every day. So I feel like I'm going to be using a bunch of these AI tools every day. So even for the podcast, interestingly enough, I use a bunch of these AI tools to help generate my notes and obviously transcript, but it also generates sections. And stuff. So this, is, this has been awesome. Thanks again, Ani, for taking the time. Like I said, I definitely want to get you back on when you're able to talk a little more about all the Google like generative AI stuff that you're working on whenever that, that comes out. So thanks again and all the best on all your future endeavors. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good.